This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Once more, though, before we begin, the admonition or the encouragement to remain careful but not fearful, there's a point where you just have to put all of that out of your mind and decide whether or not you trust God or not. He's either bigger than our problems or he's not. We trust him enough with our sins. Surely we can trust him enough with our health. There really is no cause for panic. There really is no cause for fear. So let's go ahead and let's dive into our study tonight in the Word. So 1 Peter chapter 5. So Peter writes, there's, well, there's five paragraphs in this last chapter. And, and usually, in, usually in the end chapter of a Bible, of a book in the Bible, in the New Testament, one of the letters of the apostles is all of the salutations, you know, greet so-and-so, um, and so forth. But we don't really have a whole lot of that in the last chapter of this book. Peter says, the elders which are among you, I exhort. What's that mean? I exhort them. I strongly encourage them and instruct them. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, that's dirty money. That's what that phrase means in King James English. It's just another way of saying ill-gotten gain or dirty money. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now I want to take this paragraph apart and, and instruct out of it, because there's a couple of things in here that really speak to us. Uh, and that, that speak to my particular position as a pastor, how I should be and how I should not be with respect to the church of the living God. And uh, so let's just deal with that. So he exhorts the elders of the church, acknowledging himself also as an elder. He says, uh, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, it's important that he brings that up because he was what he was telling them with that, with that phrase, a witness of the sufferings of Christ is not just an elder, I'm an apostle. That's what Peter was saying. He was saying that he was he was an elder, yes, but he was also more than an elder as far as the church hierarchy was concerned or the governing of the church is concerned. He was saying, I'm also an apostle. I'm someone who walked with Jesus when he was alive on the earth and I had that direct personal encounter with our Lord. And so I'm an elder, yes, but I'm also an apostle. He was playing that card because he needed to establish, or at least remind, that he had the authority to do this. So he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What was he exhorting them? He says, Feed the flock of God. This pandemic hasn't run its course yet. But whatever it does, and however bad it might actually get, we're still going to feed the flock of God. We're not stopping that no matter what. So have no fear there, have no concern there. 
you come to this church, you're part of the Lord's heritage, you're part of the Lord's flock, we're going to make sure you get preached to. We're going to make sure we cover those bases. So have no fear where that or anything else is concerned. So he says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Now let's take that first part first. Feed the flock of God. What's the role of a minister in the church? What's the role of a minister of any kind in the church is to feed the flock of God. And it doesn't mean that he is over the flock as being better it, better than it. He's part of that flock, okay? So yes, there's a hierarchy, but it's a pretty flat hierarchy. There is that. So he charges us to feed the flock, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Now, that word oversight, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but we're not going to just skip over it. The role of a minister is an oversight position. It is a position of oversight of oversight over the flock of God. And again, not out of pride or not out of these different bad motives that Peter talks about here, but out of these different good motives to ensure that the family of God, the flock of God, is well tended to in the spiritual sense. Because there is a responsibility there. I'm not magnifying myself, not by a hundred miles, but I have overseers over me, men of God to whom I have to answer. And that's fine. I'm happy to do so. As long as I'm doing what I ought to do, then it's a joyful thing. It's not, it's not something that's grievous or fearful. He says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, not as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples or examples to the flock. So he gives us three right motives and three wrong motives. So how does this relate to me as a church member? Well, understand the motive that your pastor has in doing what he's doing. I don't do this because it's a living, and I don't punch a clock to do this. I do this because I'm called to it. It's a life, and it's one that I've willingly and joyfully given myself over to. Uh, even the things that are hard, even the things that are not so fun. But whatever, you take the bad with the good, you take the challenging with the easy, you take all of it together and you roll with it. So he says, not by constraint. What's that mean? Don't, as elders, don't do it unwillingly. Don't do it, oh my goodness, I gotta go preach again. Oh, it's such a hard job. When you start hearing your pastor or a preacher start complaining about how hard it is to be a pastor, you need to pray for that dude because he's got the wrong mentality. He really does. And I heard about that recently, or a few months back, about someone who was in a pastoral role who started complaining about it, started complaining to the congregation, oh, it's so hard to be a pastor. It's so hard to be a pastor. So what? So what? This isn't something you quit from. We quit when we die or when we're rendered physically incapable. This isn't something you retire from. Really, no, no. Sometimes it is hard. So what? Sometimes it's not. So what? Hard or easy is irrelevant. There was a, a quote from a book concerning fighting. This person was training for combat and was in a, in a role that he needed to be training for combat. And uh, so his instructor approaches him for a lesson one day to instruct him. And, and his, uh, he was a young kid. He was 15 years old, not the instructor, but the student. And so the 15-year-old was a bit petulant that day and made a statement, said, 
not in the mood. Not in the mood for it today. His instructor was rightly incensed by that attitude. And I think his, his response was, mood? He said, mood is a thing for cattle and making love. You fight when the need arises, regardless of your mood. Well, that's absolutely the way that it is with the, with the ministering of the word or, or our lives in Christ doing right or doing wrong. Mood's got nothing to do with it, man. You preach when the need arises or teach when the need arises. You, you do right when the need arises versus when the versus doing wrong. You do right because it is right and our moods have nothing to do with it. They have nothing to do with it. He says to flee the, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint or by compulsion or by obligation alone, but willingly. We do this willingly and not for dirty money, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And Paul the Apostle also speaks of that, about always being ready to have an answer, having a ready answer for the hope that is in us whenever anyone should ask. And so it's something that he says in another place to be ready in season and out of season. And, and I've always kind of had the attitude of there is no out of season. There's always It's always in season for, for being ready to give to, to bear witness to somebody else about the hope that is in you. You know what I mean? When, when someone comes to me, oh, well, I'm just a church member. I hate that phrase, just a church member. You're not just a church member. You're a member of the body of Christ. Yes. You're absolutely a precious soul in the assembly of the Lord God Almighty and of his family and, and, and one of the sheep of his flock. And likewise am I, a sheep of his flock. So I don't try to put myself out there as one of the sheep dogs or, or one of the shepherds, although that's what the word pastor means. But... You know, we're all part of the same body, fitly, fitly framed together, this structure that makes up the body of Christ. So, but it's always in season when someone comes up to you and asks you, hey, why do you believe what you believe? And how are you so sure that you're right as opposed to somebody else? And, and that's all not just a big waste of time. He admonishes us to, to have a ready answer for that. And to do that, you got to know the God you live for. And you've got to know your word. You know what I mean? Know the Bible enough to say, well, you know what? I was once a sinner. And he forgave me of all of it. And he made me, he didn't just forgive me, he made me into a new creature. He really did. And so it doesn't have to be some deep theological lesson on the subject when someone approaches with a question concerning your faith. You can keep it very down to earth. You can keep it very simple. It's not a problem. He says willingly, not for dirty money, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, this is something I gotta, I've got to take this apart very carefully, okay? Because you've got all kinds of pastors out there in, in churches all over the world. You've got everything from control freaks to super laid back, hands off, don't ever tell anyone anything uh, or exercise any kind of authority and you've got everything in the middle. So, well, which one are you? Are you control freak? Or are you super laid back, hands off? Well, I don't think I'm a control freak. In fact, I deliberately make an effort not to be because I know that that doesn't go over very well with a lot of people, especially when 
you know, you're you're working with someone who's been burned in in a, in a church somewhere in some previous church where they've uh, attended. You know, maybe something happened with the pastor. Maybe something happened with other leadership in the church or something like that. And so I try to be very careful not to act as act as a lord over God's heritage. But pastors are not without authority. They're not without authority, and and that's no new thing. That model goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and there's some merit to it. But the one lesson that a pastor learns very quickly, I think, learns very quickly, is that you can't make anybody do anything. You can pray, amen, yeah. You can preach till you're blue in the face and, and teach and exhort and admonish and counsel and pray and do all of these different things. And ultimately, someone's going to do whatever they want to do regardless. They're either going to bring themselves under subjection to the Word of God by the Spirit of God because they want to, because it's right, and they know it's what God expects, and they know it's what pleases God best, and they want to be a good son or a good daughter of the Most High God, and so there they are. And so they'll do right because they want to do right more than they would want to do what's not right, or they're going to do the wrong thing because that's what they want to do more than the right thing. And ultimately, see, here's the thing. Peter says to the elders of the church, whether they're pastors, preachers, teachers, evangelists, prophets, apostles, or whatever their role may be, whether they're a bishop or a deacon, whatever their role may be, he says, to feed the flock of God. And so I'll share with you, I'll share with you a ministerial lesson that was shared with me long ago in Bible college. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't force it down its throat. We'll minister the word until the Lord takes us home. But we cannot force people to eat. We can't. Have you, ever, have you ever seen an animal that has been force-fed? Those sheep don't like it too much, do they? They probably make horrible, rude noises, and they fight against it with everything they can until they they slip out of that until they slip out of that uh, that rancher's arms, and then they go run off somewhere and sulk and bleat for a while. Blah, and like it. Well, people are the same way, and I can't say I blame them. When you try to force something down somebody's throat, they don't react too well. But when they're hungry. Not only will they want to eat, they will eat. They'll eat of their own accord. Right. Not trying to reduce us to the, the level of fluffy white animals that, that play king of the hill and, and smell bad, but are still kind of cute. I'm not trying to do that. But we really are very much like sheep in a number of ways. He says, neither is being lords over God's heritage. I don't rule the church as a king. That's never been my attitude. And I don't ever want to be like that. But I'm supposed to be an example to the flock. So what kind of example would I be? Tell me, what kind of example would I be if I only showed up to church once a week? Now, if all we had was something once a week, that's different. But, you know, we've got four events every week as far as ministering of the word, you know, Bible study and three services. And then uh, usually a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night but and, and other things. But what kind of example would I be if... You know, you guys came here on Tuesday night and my wife was here, but I wasn't because I'm at home playing video games <laughs> uh, or, or I'm off. Not a very good example. Or I'm off on a cruise somewhere. See ya. Well, it's not summertime, but say summertime comes around. It's like, 
June, July, August, I'll be in the Bahamas. I'll see y'all when I get back. But examples, and not just in attendance, but in all things, okay? Because Peter also tells us in this, in this letter to be examples in all things. He tells us to be examples in purity, and he tells us to be examples in, in dedication, and he tells us to be examples uh, under the flock in righteousness and all these things. So, you know, if I'm out there driving like a road warrior maniac, running people off the roads, am I being a good example to the flock of temperance? If, if I'm... So many examples that we could use, you know. So he tells what the elders of a church are supposed to be. Says to feed the flock and take the oversight thereof. It means take the leadership and take the take the leadership thereof. Be led by the Holy Ghost, but in being led by the Holy Ghost, you elders of the church, you lead the church. Okay, all right. So there's some leadership there, but he tells us to do it not by constraint, but willingly, and not for dirty money, but of a ready mind, and not as being some tyrant and lord over the over over God's heritage but as being examples to the flock. So there we have it, the three main ways that elders in the church are supposed to exercise leadership uh, within the congregation of God, willingly, of a ready mind, and of being examples to the flock in those three ways. And that doesn't mean, so you see that you can't ever rebuke us or, repro or reprove us for anything. Well, no, he doesn't say that. And in fact, very much to the contrary, Paul says to the contrary uh, that we ought to be ready to rebuke and to reprove so that all may that all may learn and that all may fear. Fear who? Not the preacher, but the Lord and not the fear of terror, but the fear of respect. You know what I'm saying? We want to have that kind of right attitude towards God. In verse four, he says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So the elders of the church are only elders for a time. They're only elders for a time and for a specific reason and for a specific purpose to keep the flock of God fed, led, directed on the right track so that when the chief shepherd appears, man, we're all on the right side of this thing. You and me, brother, you, sisters, everybody, we're all on the right side of things. Where, where God is concerned. So it's not a case of the elders of the church abusing the flock. It's not about that. It's about leading it, guiding it, and keeping us on the right track. Let's move on. Verse 5, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you. See, I like this. Right after he says that, it seems to set up a hierarchy in the church based on age. But then immediately after that, he says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now stop right there. So he begins to instruct the church that he's writing or the churches that he's writing to because this is a general epistle. It's to all believers. He begins to instruct them saying, you know, ye who are younger in the church, you guys that are the younger ones in the church, whether younger in the faith or, or younger, um, younger in terms of natural age, it's almost certainly a reference to that. Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. So th there's merit to that, okay? Because typically older people know more than younger people. Now, not always. And of course, when you have someone who's young in the faith, but old in body, that creates a, a different kind of situation there where you've got someone who's raised in the faith and they're 25 years old, knows more about living for God than someone who's 55 years old, but is new to the faith. 
So you got to kind of work that out in your mind how that goes. But he says, but immediately after saying that, ye younger be subject to you to the elder. He says, no, wait a second. Why does not say no? He says, yay, you know what? All of you be subject one to another and be clothed in humility. What was he saying? Hey, get along in this thing and listen to one another. Take care of one another. He says, be subject to one another. Now, how do we do that? Well, the first thing is to be clothed in humility. Because it takes humility for someone to be subject to someone else. Especially for someone older to bring themselves themselves under subjection to someone who's younger than them. But it really does. It takes a measure of humility for someone who's older to submit themselves to someone who's younger. It doesn't take that much because there's a point where you get old enough where age matters so little to you. It's not like it was when you were on the playground and you had the fifth graders looking down their snoots at the third graders because there was a whopping two years age difference there. But that's a big age difference when you're a third grader or a first grader or a fifth grader or whatever. But the older you get, then the less that even matters. But he tells us all to be subject one to another. Be subject one to another. It's not about big eyes, little use, or anything like that. Or, or I've got a position and a name tag to go with it, and therefore I'm somebody, and you better do what I say. Maybe you saw that sort of I saw that sort of behavior going on in basic training way back in 1991. You know, you give somebody, you give one of those raw recruits some kind of authority, and suddenly they're a lord over the entire group of recruits, right? And they're shoving it in their faces. And then it only got worse in tech school because they give some of those guys these colored ropes to wear on their uniform. There was, I think, a green one and a yellow one and a red one. And the red one was like the top dog head honcho. We're not like that in the family of God. And we shouldn't be like that in the family of God. Because some of those guys were insufferable. And sometimes people can be like that. So what should we do? Be subject one to another. Be clothed in humility and be subject one to another. He says, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And that he does. He really does. Humble yourselves. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So there's a whole teaching right there bound up in that. He says, humble yourselves. Why wait until the pastor or the preacher or or the, the traveling evangelist who comes through and preaches a revival or a special service? Why wait for some minister uh, to say something that humbles you when you could just make it so much easier on yourself as an individual believer by just humbling yourself? Trust me, it is so much easier to, to bring yourself into a state of humility with respect to God and the rest of the family of God than it is to, to wait and continue in a state of pride, to wait until something gets lobbed from over the pulpit and it lands like a bomb in your front yard, in the front yard of your life, and it hurts and you're like, oh man. When we are humble, we are small. And when we are small, then that straight and narrow way is not so narrow. It really isn't. When you're small in your own eyes and you're not lifted up in pride about anything, then it's a whole lot easier to stay in the straight and the narrow way. It's plenty wide for us when we're small. There's a profound lesson in that. There really is. 
He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves, brethren. And then, you know, when it's preaching time and something heavy gets thrown out from the pulpit and goes boom, you can shout amen because you're not on the wrong side of it. You're not in the position of guilt or fault or something like that. And then, you know, the service is more joyful than it is anything else. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God cares for you. So cast your care on him. Throw it off. Get it off your shoulders. Get it onto his shoulders. He's got bigger ones anyway. And what, he, what he's talking about here in terms of care is your fears, your anxieties, the things that you would otherwise wring your hands about not knowing what to do. He's saying, get that off your shoulders and put them onto him. And he'll carry them. Let's move on. Next paragraph begins at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions which are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. What's he saying? Well, we've been preaching out of this lately, I think just a few weeks ago. Be sober, be vigilant. That's what he's telling us all to be. He's not just talking to the elders. He's talking to all believers in all churches. Be sober. Now, we've already talked about that. We've taught on it before. We'll touch on it again briefly here. It doesn't mean just don't be drunk. It means more than that. To be sober is to be sober-minded, awake and enlightened and aware of what's going on around you in the spiritual sense and how it applies in the natural sense. Be sober, be vigilant. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He's gunning for you. But you don't have to be fearful. Just be careful. That's what he's saying here. And in saying being sober and be vigilant, he's saying be careful, be circumspect. Get your eyes up off the ground of your circumstances and the immediate affairs and the cares of this life because those cares are always going to be there. You don't have to watch them. You don't have to watch those affairs too carefully because trust me, they're there. They're not going away. The paying of the bills, the cooking of the food, the doing of the laundry, the affairs of this life, the working for a living, whatever it is that you've got to do. Get your eyes up off of those and remember to look around, spiritually speaking. Look around. See what's going on. Pay attention to what's happening around you. See the hand of the devil in the bad things. See the hand of God in the good things. See the hand of God in the bad things also, because the devil's always doing bad things. But God is still the master over everything. Amen. Let's not succumb to that. Cast your, your cares upon God. Be sober, be vigilant. Yes, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. But then he tells us what to do. Whom resist. He's telling, talking about the devil. Resist the devil. Steadfast in faith, in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. There's nothing going on in your life right now that other Christians aren't facing themselves, whatever they might be, whether they be money problems, marital problems, family problems. Yes, medical problems. Goodness, yes, absolutely. There's no shortage of those. The same things that you face, your brethren that are in the world and other churches are facing as well. 
So what's the lesson there? Don't panic. Don't panic. Trust God. Let it ride. Do what you know to do. Walk with God diligently. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word. And don't panic. Neither get complacent. This is another one of those where you've got two, you know, equal and opposite errors that we could fall into. You don't want to fall into complacency either. You find the truth of it. You find the right way in the middle of that road. And then that's how we live. We go from there. So, so he says in verse 10, next paragraph, but the God of all grace who hath caused, who hath called us unto his glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's pull this apart because the whole lesson in this paragraph is found in verse 10 where he says, the God of all grace who hath called us unto his glory, his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered for a while, make you perfect. That means complete. And then he says, establish. That's archaic for establish, okay? This God of grace, this God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory, establish you and make you perfect and strengthen and settle you. That's Peter's closing wishes for all believers that he was writing to. And this includes us, okay? This hasn't lost its timeliness just because it's 2,000 years old. We're all still believers in the same common faith that Peter was in and all of the believers that he wrote to in his day. He was wishing that if we'll allow it, if we'll not mess it up, if we'll cast our cares upon God and submit ourselves one to another, and if we'll be sober and, vil and vigilant and, and, uh, and, and humble, the God of all grace will perfect us, he will establish us, he will strengthen us, and he will settle us. He will ground us in the faith. He'll make you rock solid in it so that we're not overthrown by the things of this life that, that, that would otherwise unsettle us and put us into a panic. Did any of you go buy 57,000 rolls of toilet paper? No. He'll keep you from panicking because he's got all things under control. He'll keep you from panicking. He'll settle you. He'll strengthen you. He'll ground you and perfect you and establish you. So let's let him do that in our lives. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then his closing statements here in verses 12 through 14, he says, By Silvanus, or Silvanus, depending on how you pronounce it, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salute you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, see that preacher? He said to greet one another with a kiss of charity. So come here, I'm going to give you a kiss of charity. No, we're not doing that. Even when there's not a pandemic, we're not really looking to do that. <laughs> Smooch on one another. Very different cultures, very different time. And those kisses were kisses of greeting. He says, by Silvanus, what's that mean? Silvanus was probably writing this letter as being dictated by Paul. A faithful brother unto you, as I suppose. 
I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. All of this that Peter has shared with us in these, in these five chapters of his first general epistle, all of this, he says, this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church, is, that it, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that concludes our study of Peter's first epistle, his first general epistle. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving.